Amen, amen. I'm Zach. I'm one of the leaders around here. If you haven't met me, super excited to be with you today. If you'll turn your Bibles to Luke 4, that's where we're going to be. As Joe said, we've been looking at the fingerprints of Jesus. We see in the gospel that the maker of man became man for us and for our salvation. In this section of Luke, uh, the, the gospel is unpacking, well, what is this salvation? What is this work that Jesus came to do in and through us So we've been in Luke 4. We'll read there starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll, and He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him, and He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." So we're looking at each kind of clause, each statement in that declaration. We've been walking through that the last several weeks. If you'll take note, today we're covering liberty for those who are oppressed. Next week is to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then we'll move on as we continue working through and learning about Jesus in the gospel of Luke. So today's topic is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So for the sake of understanding, let's take a moment just to clarify, what does it mean when we talk about oppression? What does it mean that people are oppressed, that Jesus has come to say, hey, I'm I'm here to bring liberty to them? The dictionary definition of oppressed means shattered, afflicted, tormented, crushed, smothered, to be broken by calamity, right? That's what it means to be oppressed, And as you look at the world around us, maybe in your own story, maybe in your own family, maybe down the street from you or around the world from you, we see that one of the things that marks uh, human history, that marks every society regards to the form of government, regards to the, the structure, regards to the value system, is that there are people who are oppressed. And what we find in the Bible is that God, who is omnipotent, uh, is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere, he has a a special uh, care and concern, uh, inclination to help. His ear is attuned to oppressed people. It seems like there's just something in the heart of God that uh, cares for oppressed people and longs to see them experience justice and to live at peace. We see that uh, outlined throughout the scripture. I'm going to walk you through a number of those scriptures today to help us all understand God's desire and longing and inclination towards uh, oppressed people. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, God speaks and he says, Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. This is the beginning of the Exodus story in the book of Exodus, right? When God delivers the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And we see that it starts with the Israelites living in oppression. And God saying, I have heard their cry 
and I have seen that the Egyptians are oppressing them. God delivers them. He gives them actual liberty. He brings them out, and then he begins to establish this new family, this redeemed community that is meant to embody God's care and concern for oppressed people. And he does that by giving them laws, giving them rules. And we see in these rules, again, God's heart against oppression comes through. Exodus 23, verse 9. So now they've been brought out. God begins to speak to them. He says, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you were foreigners in Egypt. So God says, you remember what it's like to be a foreigner. You remember what it's like to be in a strange land and to be oppressed. And as foreigners come into your community, you are not to oppress them. Exodus 23, verse 21. He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner, or you can say a foreigner, or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, another category of vulnerable people that God is concerned with. He said, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Wow, those are heavy words. If you're a parent, you know when you're working on disciplining your kids and you're teaching them the right way, you know that when topics are serious, right, when things really matter, you get more firm in the consequences. You get more firm in saying this will not happen. And here we sense God's heart and God's passion against oppression for the widow, for the orphan, and that his community was going to be a place where vulnerable people could flourish. Exodus 23, 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, another category of people that can often experience oppression, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. So if there's someone poor in your midst and they come to you and they need some money, this isn't a business opportunity for you. This is not an empire for you to build exacting interest against the poor. So think payday loan shops here in our world, right? God is saying in my community, we're not going to have those exorbitantly high interest rates that take advantage of the poor. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge and you, sh you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering and it is his cloak for his body and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So again, cloaks don't really fit in our culture, but imagine back then you've got this cloak that serves as your blanket, as your shelter, as your protection from the storm. If you're in a spot where you would, the only thing you would have to give is your coat as kind of a security measure on a loan, right? You probably don't have great shelter. And here God is saying, if someone comes to you to borrow money and they give you their cloak as the security item against the loan, you're not to hold on to that thing. You're to give it back to them because how else are they going to be protected against the elements? How else are they going to be warm? And again, you see God's compassion for the poor come through. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. So again, God's speaking against oppression. And he's saying, I am the creator of the poor. They're image bearers just like you. And whoever oppresses them 
speaks against me, insults me. But he who is generous to the needy honors his maker, honors him. Leviticus 19.13, even parts of the Bible you may not go to that often, we continue to see God's heart for oppressed people. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So now we see another class of people that can be oppressed is between boss and employee. And God is saying when employees work for you, you're not to hold on to their wages. Oh, hey, we'll get to that tomorrow. Oh, hey, we'll get to that next week and just kind of drag it on and drag it on. Leaving people who are in need financially, who have done hard work in lack. God's saying, no, you need to be quick. If you're a boss, you need to be quick to pay your employees. Deuteronomy 24, 14. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Again, speaking to bosses whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who is in your land within your towns. So whether he's part of the Israelites or he's a foreigner in your midst, you are still not to oppress him in your employment practices. Psalm 9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. In Isaiah 58, we see that the Israelites bring a complaint to the Lord. They've been fasting... And they're complaining to God that he has not heard their cry as they have fasted. And God speaks a powerful word about oppression to them. They come to him in verse 3. Why have we fasted, God, and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, this is God speaking. Behold, in the day of your fast, what you're after is your own pleasure. You're fasting and you're coming to me and you're, you're pursuing things that are just to build yourself up. And while you're doing that, you oppress all of your workers. So there's this hypocrisy going on here. And God says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. So God speaks that to these people who are seeking him that part of their seeking him is not just praying and fasting oriented toward him, but it's the way in which they love their neighbor. And they are to be a people that labor against oppression. Jeremiah chapter 6, we see that God's now speaking not to individuals, but to an entire city. He's addressing a city. So when you think city, again, collection of individuals, right? But their laws, their practices, their customs, there's regulations that shape the life of the city. And God is speaking against these. Jeremiah chapter 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege mound against Jerusalem. Basically, go to attack against her. This is the city that must be punished. Why? Because there is nothing but oppression within her. So here this city, right, the crown jewel of God's people, God is saying, hey, they are, even in that city, the, the thing that's happening there is this overwhelming oppression of the poor, of the weak, of the needy, of the employees, of all of these things. And God says this deserves judgment. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. 
This is the last one for right now. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, so people doing like witchcraft, against the adulterers, people in sexual morality, against those who swear falsely, people who are swindlers and liars, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. Now, the first several of those categories were like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's obvious. And then you see oppression against employees, against the hired worker in the pay scale is something in God's economy that is on the same level as witchcraft, as adultery and immorality, as deceit. He says they oppress not just the worker, but they oppress the widow and the fatherless and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. So not only is it against employees, but it's also against the fatherless, it's against the widow, and it's against the foreigner. And God is saying this is on the same level. To my people, this needs to be on your radar on the same level as witchcraft, as immorality, as, as deceit. He says, they don't fear me, says the Lord. Wow, those are strong words. You can see in the scriptures, man, God is uniquely uh, engaged on behalf of oppressed people. There's a care and a concern there. So when Jesus speaks this, it comes with a loaded history, this continued desire of God to see oppressed people experience liberty. Now, one thing that I want you to note here uh, is that every scripture that I just referenced, we didn't even get to the New Testament. Those are all Old Testament scriptures where you see God's kindness, compassion, uh, hope, and mercy extended to weak and vulnerable people. And this is challenging to many of us, right? You might be like, wow, Zach, I mean, I see that God is compassionate to the poor and the needy and the oppressed. I've always thought of the Old Testament God as kind of being grumpy, uh, angry, moody, Ready just to strike people down whenever they got out of line, right? Just kind of unpredictable, right? And you've got him over here, and then you've got Jesus comes along. And Jesus is nice. He's kind. He's generous. He's merciful. And it's just like this dichotomy, right? You might have seen the Lego movie uh, a couple years ago with the character Liam Neeson. He played good cop and bad cop in the same deal. Can we show that picture, Right? <laughs> So on the same kind of person, right, he would be good cop, and that's the smiley guy. He offers you a glass of water, and then a minute later, he turns around, and now it's bad cop, and he's going to take you to the melting chambers, right? We can feel like, and we can perceive, it's not unusual that you might have had the thought, man, it kind of seems like the God of the Bible is like that. Like you turn to kind of this half of the book, and it's like, oh, bad cop. You turn to this half of the book, and it's like, oh, likable Jesus. Mm. Okay, and that really uh, can mess with us. And I want to make sure that you see that God has always been like Jesus. Jesus is speaking here in Luke 4 about God's heart for the oppressed. But we can trace all through the Old Testament the compassion and the mercy and the consistency of God for weak broken, vulnerable, and oppressed people. So there's not a dichotomy. There's not good cop and bad cop. God 
has always been like Jesus. Now, this kind of wrestle, man, it's gone a long ways back in church history. I'm going to give you a little history lesson right now. I'm going to show you a man by the name of Marcion, who you can also pronounce as Martian. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, don't be a Martianite. Don't be a Martianite. Turn to somebody, tell them, don't be a Martian today. Okay? Only time in church will tell you not to be a Martian, and I'm going to tell you why. So Marcion, uh, and I'll just say that so their minds don't go like aliens in outer space with, with Martian. Marcion well, lived around the year 140 A.D., about 100 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He lived in the Roman Empire, and his father was a pastor. His father was a leader in the church, and Marcion was a part of that community of faith. Uh, but something along the way, Marcion began to uh, do things and teach things that were out of line with the character of God and the character of the people of God. He began to be involved in kind of sexually immoral relationships, and he began to teach that the Christian perspective on God is what I just articulated to you. Old Testament God is bad, evil, uh, mean, capricious, all of these things. New Testament God, Jesus, is kind, generous, compassionate. And in the gospel, uh, you kind of got Old Testament God who's set up this terrible world, and Jesus comes, right, and he, and he kind of overcomes his dad. He kind of says, hey, no, 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 we're going to do a new thing, right, and they're at battle with one another. Well, he began to teach this. And his father and the leaders of the church pulled him in and said, hey, uh, number one, we don't practice sexual immorality. We're people of Jesus. We're following Jesus. Number two, what you're teaching is not in line with the gospel. It's not in line with what Christians believe. And Martian wouldn't uh, repent. He wouldn't uh, come under. He wouldn't say, okay, I receive this correction. He actually rebelled against them, and he got disfellowship, kicked out of the church over spreading these views and over his practices. Well, he was a wealthy guy. He made his money as a sailor on the Mediterranean Sea in the trade industry. And so he migrated from where he was from to Rome. And he shows up in Rome, and this is pre-days of like Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, where new people show up, you have no history of them, right? He shows up to church, and he's wealthy, and he has a plan, and he makes a, a very large donation to this new church. And historians tell us that this donation then curries favor with the church leaders. They're like, well, well who is this guy, you know, that brought all this money into the church? So it creates a little bit of a platform for Marcion. And he begins to teach these same things, right? God of the Old Testament, mean. God of the New Testament, kind. And they're at battle with one another. And it just began to spread, not just in Rome, but it began to spread throughout the, the spread of Christianity. It was affecting many churches, these teachings. So the leaders of the church came together, and they would articulate this was one of the most significant challenges that they were facing to the gospel. Get this. They're being persecuted. They're being fed to the lion's den. They're being lit on fire at emperor parties. And yet what they say, the most significant challenge that the gospel is facing is this issue of a misunderstanding of the nature and character of God. So they come together and they say, no, this is what Christians believe. It's actually what led to the forming of the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. They said, this is what Christians believe. They wanted to define it. They wanted to make sure that it was clear. And I want to make sure that you see that too. 
Because if we're caught kind of in this, well, who is God today? Like, you've got God the Father, and He's ready just to take His wrath out on humanity. Man, man, they got out of line. I'm just going to, like, go after them, right? And then you're imagining, like, God the Son being like, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, you know, don't, don't take it out on them. I kind of like them. Why don't you just take it out on me? I'll stand in for them. And you can lay out all your anger on me. Just take it out on me. Right? And some of us understand that's what we think that is happening as we read the scriptures in the life of Jesus. Right? So you see the cross. You're like, God poured out his wrath on him. And then now we get to get saved. From what? I don't know. But now we're kind of in this family with this dad who's kind of angry all the time and we got Jesus who kind of likes us, but I don't know if I get too close into this, like, is, is God the Father just going to snap? Doesn't sound like much of a salvation to me, right? And we can live kind of just caught in multiple personality disorder, God. Or you might be a prodigal here today, like you've been out a long time, you've been in a far off field, and in this season, kind of this last six months or year, you've been returning to the Lord. And you're like, you're counting on Jesus' mercy to get you in the door, right? You're like, okay, I know there's forgiveness at the cross, but now that you're back, you're like, I don't really know where to stand in this family. I don't really know. I'm not getting too close to God the Father over there because, man, when is he going to turn into bad cop and come after me? And what I want you to see, again, why this is so important, the testimony of Scripture the testimony of the Christian church, what we've seen today is that God has always been like Jesus. And I want to read to you a quote from Augustine that helps uh, understand kind of how to pit these two things, how they fit together, this, the justice of God and the compassion and the mercy of God. And here's Augustine on this. He said, God's love is incomprehensible and unchangeable. For it was not after we were reconciled to him through the blood of his son that he began to love us. Rather, he has loved us from before the world was created. The fact that we were reconciled through Christ's death must not be understood, catch this, as if his son reconciled us to the father so that now he, the father, might now begin to love those whom previously he had hated. Rather, we have already been reconciled to him, the Father who loves us, with whom we were enemies on account of sin. The apostle will testify whether I am speaking the truth. And he references Romans 5.8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, Augustine goes on, he loved us even when we practiced enmity toward him, even when we committed wickedness toward him. Thus, in a marvelous and divine way, he has loved us even when he hated us. Now, he goes on to explain what he means. For he hated us for what we were that he had not made. Yet because of our wickedness, uh, yet because our wickedness had not entirely consumed his handiwork, he knew how at the same time to hate in each one of us what we had made and to love what he 
had made. What's he saying there? Augustine is saying is that God has always loved us. We're not to think of the cross as, well, now Jesus loves us, and maybe he reconciles to God, so now God starts loving us. No, it's the Father who has loved us and sent his Son to save the world. But Augustine is saying that God hated what we had become. God hated oppression. God hated the wickedness of mankind. God hated to see the things that mankind would do to one another. God stands against that. And at the same time, God is able to see that there's something more original to you and to me than sin and wickedness. There's something more original than what we call original sin. There's the original imprint, the stamp of the image of God in our lives. And God sees who he's made us to be. He sees the calling on our lives. He sees the gold in our lives. When you come before God, God sees the gold in who you are. He stamped himself inside of you. And so while he stands against things that we have done, ways that we have acted, the way we have treated people, he stands in love with who he's made you to be that's deeper and more true to who you are than your sin and your wickedness. Man, this is good news, right? So when we come to Easter next week, again, we're not coming to good cop, bad cop, like Good Friday, oh man, Resurrection Sunday, yay! No, we're coming to a God who has always loved us, who has always been like Jesus. And because of his great love, he stood against us when we stood against his ways. When we've oppressed vulnerable people, he stood against us. And rightly so, he's a God of justice. But his standing against us is rooted in his great love for mankind. So as Jesus comes to say, we go back to Luke 4, I've come to set the oppressed free. We see that this has long standing in the Bible and is a deep concern to God's heart. Now, you might ask me, Zach, uh, this is cool. I learned something new today. That's great. Um, But I've read further in this story, and these people actually get mad uh, at Jesus. Like, they get real angry with him. Uh, they even kill him. Like, so I, I don't understand, Zach, if, if this has been a long time in the Bible, this is part of their culture to care for oppressed and vulnerable people. Why? And they're, they're oppressed by Rome at this time. The people gathered around Jesus here in the, in the temple, right? They've been oppressed by Rome. Why are they going to get so upset? Why are they going to get so angry? Why are they going to like, want to kill Jesus for coming and saying, hey, I'm here to set the oppressed free? That's kind of a feel-good message, Right? Yet they get so mad at him. Why why is that? Well, what we read as we journey forward in the scripture is that Jesus here is speaking at a material level about people's physical conditions. And the Bible speaks to that. In fact, it's impossible to love your neighbor without caring for their physical needs. The Bible is very clear on that. And yet at the same time, Jesus is taking things a layer or several layers deeper. And when he's talking about oppression, right, what he's saying as we progress through the story, what he's saying to the people gathered there in the church, reading the Bible, praying, you know, they're they're the religious people. He's actually going to say that they, as well as the rest of the world, is under the oppression or the power of, 
of sin. So he's going to say, hey, this oppression deal is not just rah, rah, let's help, you know, the, the widows and the orphans. No, you are in sin. You are under oppression. And if you want to know if that makes someone mad, try it today at lunch. With your waiter or waitress, you know, they come up, take your order, and you're like, you are under the power of sin. See, see what happens. Maybe post the social media status. Just try that out. Everyone who reads this, you're under the power of sin. It is offensive, right? But as, I, as we saw two weeks ago, and if you weren't here, dial back, go back two weeks ago. There's a very real, reasonable, rational, plausible kind of thought process that sees sin as a power that the world is under. I unpacked that two weeks ago, so if you missed that, go back. But today, Jesus is speaking to that very thing, the power of sin, that these people are underneath its grip. So think about this. That's offensive because it's like kind of like Joe uses this example uh, before. You go to Christmas, somebody gives you a gift. That's great. It's a weight loss book, and you're like... I don't really know how to take this. Like, I guess you're, you know, like it's a little bit offensive. To receive the gift, you have to acknowledge your need, right? Or, or you go and someone gives you the book, like how not to be a jerk, 21 ways not to be a jerk. You're like, wow, you really thought of me here, huh? You know, you can get offended unless you know you're a jerk. And then you realize the kindness of that person coming to help you. In the same way, Jesus loves us enough to tell us how it is, right? And he's saying to them, though you're in church, though you're doing the right thing, I see your heart. You are under the power of sin. How many of you know it does not necessarily matter what you or I feel regarding being under the power of sin if we're under the power of sin, right? Our feelings are good gauges in life, uh, but they're like, they kind of help us to understand what's going on, but they're not great guides, Example, I had a friend a couple weeks ago, my age, uh, had been working out and then all of a sudden had a stroke. She's 36, had a stroke. They took her to the hospital. She found out that she had not only a stroke, but she had two aneurysms in her brain and a hole in her heart. And yet that morning, she had felt fine. Yet underneath the surface, all was not fine, right? The same is true with sin. We can be desensitized yeah, I'm good. I don't really feel guilty about things. I'm kind of a good guy, kind of a good girl. And Jesus is delivering a diagnosis here that the entire world is under sin, is oppressed by sin. And he has come to set people free, to create a community where all can flourish, all can be redeemed, all can be the image bearers that they're called to be. And that's a hard word to receive. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, right, you're, you're exploring Jesus and you're, you're thinking about that, I, I want to be real with you. To receive Christ means you've got to acknowledge your need. You've got to agree with God's diagnosis. And so if you don't feel like, you, if you feel like, man, I'm good, I encourage you to actually read these scriptures and let them read you rather than us just kind of diagnosing ourselves. But if you'll receive the diagnosis, then you'll also receive the healing that Jesus brings. So I want to encourage you not to shy away from the hard word. Let it bring you 
to a place of healing and deliverance. Because God doesn't just want to be your judge and tell you how it is. He wants to be your savior and your healer and your redeemer. And he wants to make you new. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, man, this is a great word for all of us to examine our own lives, to see where are the things in our lives where we are under the oppression of sin. Maybe it's in one of those categories related to oppressing others. Maybe it's an area in your life that you just feel owned by the enemy. I want you to know that Jesus has freedom for you. So I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to go to God. Uh, we're going to go to God by prayer today. Uh, and then uh, we are going to um, close. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, that you are a deliverer, that you came to set oppressed people free. God, I pray that all of us would have the humility to receive your diagnosis and that you would fill us in that humility with the hope of the freedom and new life that you bring. Thank you that you love oppressed people and you want to see them set free. And I pray as a community that we would be a people that love the poor, love the oppressed, love the fatherless, love the widows, Lord, love our employees. If we're employers, that we would uh, do justice, Lord, in those realms. In Jesus' name, amen.